Pipeline. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And Sergeant Madeline McConnell. Hello, everyone. And as always, we are going to be your hosts for this week. So this week, we have a pretty interesting topic. We are going to be talking about the aerial strategy of the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. Now, the Vietnam War was a very controversial war. Um, A lot of revolutionary new strategies came out of there. A lot of very interesting things happened there. Uh, It was also a very radical time in American politics. It was at a very, uh, I'd say, key moment when American politics started really shifting in a different direction. Um, But that said, we're going to be looking at the aviation aspects to that whole war. So first of all, uh, for this episode, we're going to be discussing the main roles of the air arm in the following U.S. military branches. So to list off the military branches is Sergeant Madeline McConnell. So take it away. Um, So the U.S. military service branches were the U.S. Air Force, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Army, and the uh, U.S. Marine Corps. Yeah, so each one of these branches actually has their own specific aircraft. They have uh, their own pilots, and they all use them for a variety of different roles. So we're going to be talking, first of all, about what the role of each service branch was. So first of all, again, to talk about the U.S. Air Force's role is Sergeant McConnell. Thank you. So having the largest fleet of aircraft in the world, the U.S. Air Force served as a jack of all trades, filling many roles. Some of the major roles included air supremacy, close air support, reconnaissance, strategic bombing, transportation, and airlift missions. All right. Thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So, yeah, the U.S. Air Force did quite a lot of things because, uh, as she said, yeah, it had the largest fleet in the world, had the largest range of aircraft. So, yeah, it was sort of a jack of all trades. Uh, Now, next, we're going to talk about the role of the U.S. Navy's air service. So here to talk about that is Sergeant Paul. Thank you, Anderson. So almost all operations performed by U.S. Navy aircraft were operated off of aircraft carriers. And so due to this, the majority of Navy operations took place in coastal areas or over the South China Sea. Some of its major roles of U.S. Navy aircraft were air supremacy, bombing raids against ports and similar naval installations, as well as direct ground support, usually with maritime landings. All right. Thank you, Sergeant Paul. Yeah. So pretty much just to sum up what he said, they pretty much did the exact same thing as the Air Force, just on a much smaller scale using smaller aircraft. Uh, Next, we're going to move on to the U.S. Army and the Marine Corps, and we're grouping these two together because their strategy was very similar to each other. So again, to explain that is Sergeant Paul. So take it away. Thank you. And so since the Army and Marine Corps are both heavily based around ground combat, their strategy was focused on supporting the troops on the ground. And so to support these missions, the Army and Marines had a focus on helicopters with only a limited number of fixed-wing aircraft used for close air support. Some of them included main jobs carried out by helicopters of the Army and Marine Corps, which were frontline troop transportation, medical evacuation, helicopter gunship support, reconnaissance, and artillery spotting. All right, so thank you, Sergeant Paul, for explaining the strategy of U.S. Marines and the U.S. Army. So yeah, during this war, 
helicopters were a really big deal. I think that's something that we've all seen in a lot of movies. Like uh, if anyone here has ever seen the movie Apocalypse Now, there's that really famous scene where they all ride in on the choppers playing that really loud opera music. That's a hilarious scene. But yeah, whenever you think of Vietnam, you think of helicopters. So just really quickly, we want to explain why helicopters were so widely used during this war. So just to do that, we have Sergeant McConnell. So Sergeant McConnell, go ahead. Perfect. Um, the main reason for the widespread use of choppers during the war was due to the harsh environment of Vietnam. The dense jungles and large swamps made it difficult for heavy vehicles to traverse the terrain. And so instead, helicopters were used because they could go almost anywhere and perform a large variety of tasks. All right, thank you, Sergeant McConnell. So yeah, Vietnam is a very jungly, it is a very harsh environment. So choppers were really the only way they could get equipment in there because most of the roads were tiny dirt paths. You could not fit a tank down that thing. It would be practically impossible. And the U.S. Army actually did make several uh, tries with that. The problem was their enemy, the Viet Cong, used a lot of very hard guerrilla tactics. So using traditional armor really wasn't going to be an option in this war. They had to use something new. And you have to remember, this is the 1960s and 1970s. So helicopters were still fairly new at this time. They had been around for maybe 30, maybe 20 years only. Uh, so yeah, this was the, I think one of the first wars where they saw a major, major role. So of course, choppers were used to a great extent in Korea, but it was nowhere near as widespread as it was during Vietnam. Um, now, finally, we need to talk about one of the largest aerial campaigns of the war, which was Operation Rolling Thunder. So for this, this really doesn't have many helicopters involved in it. It is almost entirely fixed wing aviation. Uh, so Operation Rolling Thunder was the aerial bombing of North Vietnam by the US forces. And it took place between March the 2nd, 1965 November 2nd, 1968. The operation was actually not planned by the U.S. military, but by President Lyndon B. Johnson, along with several civilian administrators. And this was actually fairly controversial because it's not really normal for a civilian to just come in and start saying, I want the military to do this. Like it has happened a few times, but normally you have like this, the civilians tell the military okay, here's what we need to do. And then you have the military plan it out. It's not very common for the civilian administration itself to be planning out operations. Yeah, that doesn't um, sound like the best idea, I gotta say. No, like, um, like for example, during World War II, you didn't see guys like um, Roosevelt himself planning out every stage of the D-Day landing. Like he said to, uh, I think General Eisenhower was in charge at that time. He said to General Eisenhower, I want troops in Northern France but he let General Eisenhower plan it out. He didn't go down and tell him every single thing he should do. So, yeah, that's why this act and this operation was very, very controversial. Um, so now I'm quickly going to mention what the main goals of the operation were. So they were to boost the morale of the South Vietnamese people, to put pressure on the North Vietnamese government to stop supporting insurgents in the South, uh, to destroy the military and industrial infrastructure of the North Vietnamese, and to prevent Viet Cong soldiers from crossing the border into the South. So this was a really difficult operation to conduct for the military because its main objective really wasn't to destroy the enemy. 
it was sort of to deter them. So yes, they were bombing their um, their infrastructure and their military targets, but that really wasn't the goal. Their goal wasn't to take out the enemy. Their goal was to put pressure on the North Vietnamese government so that uh, they would hopefully back down. Um, anyone who knows anything about this though, knows that that didn't work. And that's sort of how the Vietnam War started. And the Vietnam War lasted for a long time. So American involvement, I believe was 65 to 75, but it, was, it went on a lot longer than that. I believe it started in 1953 with the French, but yeah, this was definitely a very long and a very bloody war. But no, this was, this was really not the best thought out idea of, we don't want to attack the enemy. We want to put pressure on them to sort of push them back. The problem with that was that the North Vietnamese were very determined. So this, this was sort of doomed to fail from the start. Uh, really, it wasn't going to deter them. They, they were never going to surrender. Uh, now, President Johnson had decided to use aerial bombing instead of sending in ground forces for a few reasons. The first was that he was concerned about the number of potential U.S. casualties. Uh, and the other was that he wasn't, really, he wasn't really looking to provoke China or the Soviet Union. And he was worried that if he launched a ground invasion, both of those people would get involved. Or sorry, both of those countries would get involved. Now, again, anyone who knows anything about the Vietnam War will tell you that did not work. And thousands upon thousands of U.S. troops were sent into Vietnam. Um, Yes, that, that really wasn't a very good plan. That wasn't really well thought out because I don't think there's ever been a time in history where aerial bombing by itself has worked. It really needs to be followed up by uh, ground assault. I mean, that must have been in World War II if they hadn't stopped switching over to, uh, if the Germans hadn't switched over to bombing British cities. They could have potentially crippled their military with just aerial bombarding if they just kept on going for military targets. See, I think, though, the Germans were uh, having the same problem as Rolling Thunder, though, where their objective was to sort of break the spirit of the British people. Um, and I think the British people, they were never going to surrender. They were so determined to win against the Germans that the Luftwaffe had basically no, no chance of winning. I think the Americans were facing the exact same thing here. The North Vietnamese were so determined and they were so fierce that I think it's a very low chance they would have actually surrendered from aerial bombing alone. Um, one interesting thing I want to point out was um, that a lot of times bombs weren't actually dropped from B-52s. One funny thing was that they would drop the Ace of Spades. They had thousands of these Ace of Spades from decks of cards printed. And the reason they did that was there was an old myth that um, Vietnamese were super... Uh, like superstitious about um, the ace of spades. They thought it was a bad omen, like it was a symbol of death. And so to try and scare them, they would dump thousands upon thousands of these ace of spades over their cities or they'd dump them in the fields. That probably didn't work too well because, I mean, a piece of paper isn't really going to be effective. It's not going to destroy military targets or infrastructure. I think probably all it did was give them a good source of toilet paper for the duration of the war. Yeah, the only thing it really did was boost American morale, and that was, that was about it. Mm. And I must mention, that's never actually been confirmed if the Vietnamese are superstitious about the Ace of Spades. They might have just been, what are these guys doing? Like, why are they dropping playing cards on us? That might have confused the heck out of them. We have no clue of knowing if that worked or not. Um, 
Right. So Rolling Thunder was a joint operation that was carried out both by the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy. However, as I said earlier, it was under the very close supervision of the civilian administration. And again, that was very controversial because a lot of people have pointed out saying that they think um, that was part of the reason it failed, that the civilian administration really gave them too many restrictions and it really hampered what they could do. Like it put a lot of red tape in place for what the Air Force could do. We're going to talk a little bit later on um, what some of these restrictions were. Now, because the two branches, the U.S. Air Force and the U.S. Navy, were operating on different principles, they often had really scattered and really unorganized air cover in the region. So to fix this issue, Vietnam was divided into seven operational zones. And this was done, I believe, by the U.S. Pacific Command of the Navy. So um, the Air Force was assigned zones 1, 5, and 6A. And these were mainly inland, and they focused mostly on military bases, airfields, and industrial centers. And the Navy was assigned zones 2, 3, 4, and 6B, which were all predominantly coastal areas. And when they were there, they focused mainly on ports, shipyards, and other maritime infrastructure. Now, the border with China and the cities of Hanoi and Haiphong were designated as no-fly zones. I probably butchered those uh, Vietnamese city names, but we're trying our best here. Now, again, the reason these cities were made uh, no-fly zones and same with the border with China was they really didn't want to provoke a response from the Soviet Union or from China. They worried that uh, if they started bombing these population centers, that would probably bring other countries into the war on Vietnam's side or on North Vietnam's side. Um, so at first, the U.S. Air Force used the F-105 Thunder Chief for a large portion of the raids. This aircraft was rugged and could carry up to 5,000 pounds of bombs. Uh, because they were based in Thailand, these planes were forced to conduct mid-air refueling on their way to Vietnam. Now, despite the good quality of the Thunder Chief, they sustained heavy losses, with approximately half of them being lost during the war. It is for that reason that they were replaced by the F-4 Phantom. Now, the Phantoms were far more capable against North Vietnamese MiGs, and they used more advanced radar-guided weapons. In addition to that, the Air Force also used their fleet of B-52 Stratofortress strategic bombers because of their higher payload capacity and their ability to operate in poor weather conditions. So the F-4 Phantoms, yes, they worked as bombers, but they were mainly designed to be multi-role aircraft. So um, they were actually very similar to the F-35 in their concept, where they want them to be close air support, strategic bombing, and fighter all wrapped into one. Um, the problem with that, though, is that the is F-4 that... actually worked. The F-4 <laughs> the actually F4 worked actually in those roles. Worked. Right. But I think the problem with trying to make a plane the jack of all trades is in order to do that, you have to sort of limit its capacity in a few areas. So it wasn't the best at strategic bombing. So, yes, it was good. It could carry a large amount of bombs, but they really needed the B-52 because it had a much higher payload and it could fly in all weather. And yes, yeah, so Vietnam experiences a lot of rain. And yeah, those F-4s could not fly very well in those dense rain conditions and thunderstorms, stuff like that. Whereas it'd be 52, it'd be much easier to do. Now, during the beginning of the campaign, the Navy used old Douglas A-1 Sky Raiders. These were propeller-driven planes. So these were old leftovers from the Korean War. 
Now, these planes were also proved to be too vulnerable, and the Navy ended up losing about one-third of their aircraft. Or sorry, I'm reading uh, the next line here. They were replaced by the A-4 Skyhawk, which was a jet this time. But yeah, these planes were also too vulnerable, and they ended up losing a third of them. Now, this aircraft would get replaced by the Grumman A-6A Intruder. This jet included cutting-edge digital systems, which gave it an edge over enemy fighters. This also made it easier to fight at night. So this aircraft had a really good night vision system on board. So it was really easy for pilots to attack targets at night when the Viet Cong probably weren't expecting it. Um, now, during the campaign, the North Vietnamese retaliated with anti-aircraft guns and surface-to-air missiles. These weapons were very dangerous to aircraft flying at both uh, low altitude and high altitude. So the aircraft that were flying at super high altitude would have to watch out for surface-to-air missiles. The problem was, whenever they would fly down low to try and avoid these surface-to-air missiles, they would get shot at by the anti-aircraft guns. Now, when I say anti-aircraft guns, these are stuff that were used in World War II, probably. Because, yeah, the concept of an anti-aircraft gun hasn't really changed too much at all throughout history. It's pretty much just a big flat cannon. Um, yeah, the, the problem with that is, though, the main strategy of a pilot would be to fly down low and fast. That doesn't really work when you have a, a massive anti-aircraft gun right on the ground there. So I think the Vietnamese, they were definitely doing very good. They had um, a lot of very outdated technology, but they were able to do a very effective job with it. Um, uh, let's see. Now, despite this, despite all of the danger that these pilots faced, the civilian administration actually forbade pilots from attacking anti-aircraft installations unless they were fired upon. This is because they were concerned about provoking the Soviets whose troops were instructing the Viet Cong soldiers. Now, see, this is where we start getting into the uh, civilian oversight that a lot of people criticize as being one of the main factors in this mission's failure. I think when you know an anti-aircraft gun is, like the whole point of an anti-aircraft gun is to shoot you down. I think you should have the, the right to sort of shoot back at it. Their philosophy was you are not allowed to attack it first. The problem with that is though, in most cases, when you're getting shot up by an anti-aircraft gun, it's already too late, especially with a surface-to-air missile. If you get hit by one of those, you're really not going to have time to fire back, especially right. if there are multiple of them. Right. And I think that's one of the major problems here. Now, so instead of uh, attacking these, the U.S. pilots had to develop new countermeasures to their defenses. So one of them was equipping aircraft with electronic systems that jammed the enemy radar. Now, another one was 105G Wild Weasel to destroy installations once they had begun firing. So these aircraft, the uh, Wild Weasel, they were very, very fast, and they had a lot of weapons on board. And their whole purpose was once the enemy started shooting at them, they flew down because once they were fired on, they had full permission to shoot back. So they had to rush down as quickly as they could, and they had to start taking out those anti-aircraft installations before they could take out uh, a real large number of American aircraft. So it soon became apparent that Rolling Thunder was not as successful as predicted. Uh, this was largely attributed to civilian oversight, which limited the number of strikes and ordered attacks on low-priority targets to try and deter retaliation. So, yeah, we've said it a lot throughout this episode. We think the um, 
the civilian oversight really hampered how effective the Air Force could do its job. But I think to the point where they're telling the Air Force, no, you can't go for that really big military factory. You have to go for this tiny little bunker somewhere just because they don't want to provoke the enemy. I think it's a very bad situation. I think it's, again, similar to what the British had to go through in World War II, where they were very worried to bomb the German cities because they were afraid of retaliation. Like you, I'm sorry, but in a war, you cannot be uh, afraid to attack enemy targets. I think at the point where you're at war, you shouldn't be fearing you know, retaliation. I think you've sort of gone past any diplomatic option there where you're actively at war with them. You need to start trying to fight as effectively as you can. Right. So, yeah, I think I wouldn't say the, um, the administration was like actively trying to be like to try and make them lose. I think they were just uh, a little short sighted in trying to work something out diplomatically when it was far past that point. Uh, like, again, there's many, um, uh, references here to world war ii that you can see like um at the beginning of world war ii neville chamberlain still believed that they could work something out with the allies that they could still have diplomatic talks um i really think when it's at the point where you're at war i think that's when you should probably start thinking hey maybe diplomacy hasn't worked maybe they should start focusing on the military more um now that said President Johnson actually ordered the operation to pause on several occasions. So again, this is some really weird civilian oversight. And the reason he ordered these pauses was to see if North Vietnam was ready to negotiate. But again, the North Vietnamese had practically no intentions of surrendering. So instead, they used this time to just rebuild their defenses and recover from any attacks. So we pretty much gave them time to rest in that war because we couldn't see that there was no diplomatic option to this. Now, overall, Operation Rolling Thunder was a failure. So we, we lost Vietnam, and this was a major battle that we lost. I'm, I'm saying we, Canada, wasn't really involved in Vietnam. That was America. But yeah, the Americans lost Vietnam, and a lot of people say this failure had a lot to do with it. So yeah, after three years of operation... Uh, Rolling Thunder was finally ordered to end in 1968. So that was a complete failure. Absolutely went horribly. It's really, um, I think this is a really good metaphor for the entire Vietnam War. It was really short-sighted. It was really poorly planned out. And in the end, it was a massive failure. Now, with all that said, that is just about our time for tonight. So we'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Goodbye. I will see you next time. Have a good one. Bye, everyone.